You're listening to Distilling Theology. I'm Blake. And I'm Justin. This is a new podcast combining discussions of theology and distilled spirits. And dad jokes. Amen. What's wrong with you people? You're not David. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Fatality. You know... Starting a podcast about theology and distilled spirits is whiskey business. <laughs> I said that with a straight face. This is Distilling Theology. I'm Blake. I'm Justin. And today, what are we sipping? We are sipping Oban single malt whiskey, 18 years aged. Extra maturity required. It is delicious, I presume. It is. So this is a limited edition malt. I'm just going to read off the back of this what they say about it. So Oban single malt scotch whiskey has a rare and unique character, a result of its unusual location at the heart of a small port town in the Western Highlands of Scotland. This is so hard to read. (laughs) It's like dark gray printed on light gray. We can do this though. Oban is imbued with a delicate smokiness, a nod to the influence of the nearby islands whose whiskeys are famous for their smoky style, just as its mainland town is a gateway to the islands of the Hebrides. I probably said that wrong. Oban itself lies between the fruity mainland and the smoky island styles of whiskey, which is very true of all the Obans, the 14-year, the Little Bay, the Distiller's Edition, the 18-year. I haven't had any of the others, but they all have this nice balance of the fruit-forward nature of your highland space-side whiskeys and the smokier nature of your island and isla whiskeys. This extra mature Oban 18-year-old comes from a small batch of American oak casks that were selected to mature for four years longer than the regular 14-year-old. Each bottle is only available in the United States. So that's pretty cool. Mm. Those extra years of maturation give Oban 18-year-old a mellow, more developed flavor. For example, the sweeter notes of ripe banana and toasted tea cake found subtly in the 14-year-old are amplified here. This rich, rounded sweetness is perfectly balanced by mysterious, dry hints of sea salt and smoky malt. Oban 18-year-old also has a long, textured finish of cocoa and seaweed. The Oban distillery is one of the smallest in Scotland, nestling between the sea and the town that grew up around it. It has no room to grow. As a result, Oban has been distilled on on its two small stills in the same way and in the same place since 1794. Only so much can be made. It is never enough. I love that. <laughs> I love uh, how dramatic. Well, it doesn't help with your voice. Everything sounds more dramatic when you read it that way. I love how dramatic. Can you read me bedtime stories? <laughs> Once upon a time. <laughs> uh, so let's take a sip and see what we think. Amen. Cheers. So the thing that I love about this scotch, because you know I, I'm a big sweet scotch guy. I love Speyside scotches, anything sweet, Delmore, um, Glen Rangie was really good. Uh, so anything that's sweet is really my palate. And I still enjoy a smoky scotch once in a while, but this has a beautiful blend of both. It's really uh, very smooth. Um, it's not overpowering with the peat or the smoke. And it's just, um, you get a little bit of citrus, a little bit of fruit, a little bit of smoke, a little bit of pepper. It's just really a great balance. Um, and if you're if you're a sweet scotch drinker and you want to get into more uh, smoky scotches, this is definitely, I think, the way to go uh, to start that journey. I would agree with that 100%. I think a lot of people 
associate scotch with the Ron Swanson Lagavulin. Which um, is delicious, by the way. Delightful. But most people are put off initially by the taste of peat smoke. So things like Lagavulin, Lafroig, Ardbeg tend to be very off-putting to people because they're so robustly smoky. And yes. peat smoke in particular has a very meaty, uh, seaweedy quality that can be very distasteful to people until mm-hmm. you've learned to appreciate it. Where fruity scotch, something like Glenmorangie, something like Balvenie, or even the Dalmore, which is a blend of Highland scotches, tend to be very fruit forward and sweet and much easier drinking. So a, a better bridge from American or Irish whiskey. Yes. But then something like Oban is a great way to transition towards the uh, Scottish Isles, which tend to be smokier. Your Highland Park, your Talisker, and then Isla whiskeys, Legavulin, Lafroig, Ardbeg. So this is very similar to the flavor profile of the 14-year-old, which is a little bit cheaper. Mm-hmm. But that extra age smooths it out. So we actually let this sit in the glass for a while while we were getting ourselves situated today. And that's one trick I always like to tell people. When you have a, a whiskey that's older, it needs more time to sit in the glass to interact with the oxygen to activate some of those flavors. Otherwise, if you just drink it on its own, you know, without giving it any time in the glass to aerate, it'll taste okay, but you won't get all that nuance of the flavor. The way I like to describe it is with this kind of silly analogy. If you'll allow me to use a brief parable. <laughs> By all means. Uh, so a man walks into a bar and he sees his college buddies and they give the rambunctious, they greet him, full force of their personality right out of the gate. And he loves his college buddies. I mean, we all love to go on trips with our old friends from college. Absolutely awesome. But they're definitely, you know, there's only so much there and it's worth it. It's something I want. Those are, you know, characteristics that I enjoy. But there's only so much depth because there's only so much life experience, particularly if we're assuming these people are all in college. Maybe they're just started graduate school. Then the guy moves to the other side of the bar. His friends are off doing something. And he sees this older gentleman with a weathered face. And he sits next to him, buys him a drink. The guy doesn't really talk much at first. But as he listens and as he starts to talk to the gentleman, the guy starts to open up. And over time, all of a sudden, this guy is telling him his war stories, telling him about his marriage and raising these kids and how what he's doing and what he did for work and how he was a welder and then he was in a shipyard and then he was a navy man and then he you know ended up doing this and he was rescued in this situation. And all of a sudden, you have this whole deep, rich experience, but it takes time to get into that. It doesn't, you know, it's not going to be all there all up front. So, you know, I use that silly little story to, you know, show the difference between a young whiskey, which is all character, all up front. And you're usually not going to get that much more if you spend a lot of time with it. It'll be the same, you know, if you just pour it immediately or if you let it sit there for a few minutes. But an older scotch needs time to open up to you a little bit. And, but what you're rewarded with is a richer character. It's not as loud at no point is this going to be as um, big in flavor as the 14-year-old. Everything's more nuanced, but it's richer. So that's my little goofy analogy of how whiskeys work. How have I never heard that before? I don't that's know. Amazing. That's I amazing. use that at my bar at least once a week. <laughs> that's wonderful. And I can't disagree with you at any point on that. It's delicious, and it's definitely something that makes you appreciate it the more you sip and the more you enjoy it. Which, interestingly enough... There's something else in our lives that... Um, segue of the century, people. So from that segue, the other thing in life, in a big way, that gets richer, like I find 
you know, one thing would be, obviously there's a big one I'm heading towards here, but uh, like rereading The Lord of the Rings, like rereading a really good book. Sure. You always find things that you didn't see before. It's like I'm rereading Old Man in the Sea like we talked about last episode. It's, yeah. it's, it's going to be different. Every, it's the same as watching a movie. Much like as we revisit the Word of God, every time that we come there, we're driven deeper into understanding. And it's infinite. I mean, that's, that's the thing that's blown my mind. Um, and we're both under 30, but like... Not for long. Not for long. But I have friends who are, you know, up in their 70s who have been digging in the Bible their whole life and they're always finding new depths and new riches. Even if it's not, and it's not necessarily novelty in the sense of, oh, I've changed my theology dramatically, though that definitely happens and that's been part of both of our journeys. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I find people, even if they've stayed, you know, in one view of theological thinking for most of their life and haven't had any major shifts in decades, they're always rediscovering the riches and discovering new depths. I don't know how else to say that, but that's... I'm still just blown away by the remarkable transition that that made. (laughs) (laughs) Praise the Lord. Storytellers, Uh, man. Absolutely. No, I I, I fully and wholeheartedly agree. God's word is a living word. It's not Mm -hmm. dead. And so in many ways, it continues to come alive to us. The more we engage, the more we learn. And again, we need to remember that while we're reading the word of God, we're reading the word of the living God Mm -hmm. who is in our lives and interacting with us. And the Holy Spirit illuminates his word for us as we read. So as we mature and as we grow as Christians in our understanding and theology and doctrine, as we mature and get prepared for the future, we can then understand more things as the Holy Spirit reveals it to us as we grow. You know, there may be things in Scripture that we're not ready to even understand yet until down the road when we understand some more basic principles of theology and and God's Word and the Gospel is basically the primary story told throughout all of Scripture. And that's why it's so incredibly important. We know that people are saved by hearing the Gospel. Mm -hmm. And the more we understand it, the more we visit it, the more we understand understand how it interacts with people and how it interacts in our own lives. And we can see how it's constantly living and shifting and being applied in every area of our life, not just our salvation, but I think the gospel is is not just for the unsaved, but for the saved oh, even absolutely. more so. Just a constant reminder of who we are and uh, why we serve the king that we serve. Yeah. It's the overarching story that defines every longing that we have. And I just want to do a little brief little exercise for the fun of it here. The book opens, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. So there's our starting point. We can point. stop there. Right. Yeah. That's, you know, let's, just, let's just like, I mean, that to me, that's an incredible, I mean, what a way, like, I've read some incredible opening lines in many books mm. of fiction. Yes. Stephen King's The Gunslinger opens with the line, the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed. Which is incredible and enticing and I, I want to know more. And then the story gets very dark and violent and it's well told. But regardless, even that, like one of the best lines I've ever read to open fiction, doesn't mm. hold a candle to the power of these four words. In yes. the beginning, God. Yes. And then we have the, the rest of that phrase, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you go to the back of the book to the end and Revelation twenty two twenty. he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And then it says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen. So the book begins in the beginning, God. And the end of the book is, I am coming soon. I get goosebumps thinking about it. And then there's 66 books in between that are written by all these different authors in all these different time periods and cultures and contexts in different languages. Different continents coming together in absolute perfect unity 
totally testable by any measure of scrutiny mm. and it just holds up and yeah. it holds up and it continues to prove true whether that be applicably or historically or archaeologically it yeah. just continues to reveal throughout history as history unfolds the way god has decreed it he's continuing to reveal himself both generally and specifically to his people absolutely i find the beauty of the gospel, as you were alluding to, is that it from page to page, the book is soaked with the gospel. And we talk about that word a lot. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of the times, because of our contemporary evangelical Western mindset, we think the gospel means only you're a sinner and Jesus died for you. But I think there's so much more to it than that, which which gives that particular phrase more meaning. Because I think, and this has just been my experience in evangelism and in apologetics, people are like, I don't want to just be told that I'm a bad person and that I need to repent or I'm going to hell. Even though that is a very important thing to communicate, that there is punishment, that there is a God that you've offended, and that he has made a way of salvation, and that way is Jesus. At the same time, that's not really the full picture of the gospel. The gospel is not only about escaping hell. It's not only about escaping wrath and being with our Savior. The gospel applies to how we do everything, how we think, how we eat, how we talk to people, how we work. Everything in our life, the gospel touches, and it should impact the way that we do life. One of the big phrases of modern evangelicals is doing life together, doing life. Well, how do we do that? What Mm -hmm. is doing life? Well, if it's not being touched by the gospel, ultimately you're doing death. That's a good point. We were talking about at the beginning of this, where do we want to go to try and summarize part of the gospel? Because it's huge. I mean, there's a bunch of passages we could go to. I was recently reading in Romans. So Romans 5. Isn't that the only book? (laughs) (laughs) Contrary to popular belief, I actually quite enjoy some of the other books, including John 3.16. Very much so. Amen. I think it's one of the most beautiful pieces of scripture. To all the the believing ones. Amen. But I just want to read a section here of Romans 5. I'll just start in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's 11 verses. That's not a lot of text. But it's a lot. Oh my gosh. I mean, also, Paul is incredible in his flow of argumentation here. But wow. One of the big things that always hits me is when it talks about rejoicing in our suffering. We live in this very comfortable culture in the West. We were actually, Blake and I today, were talking with my dad somewhat about this, this Mm -hmm. idea. We were talking about eschatology and the end and all this, and this idea that has produced in the last several hundred years in America, this idea that somehow we're going to be raptured out of any suffering Mm -hmm. and how arrogant of an idea that is when Christ specifically said, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. Mm -hmm. 
And we look across the globe and Christians are persecuted everywhere greatly. Mm. In China right now, Christians are being persecuted in unbelievable ways. And we sit over here thinking, you know, oh, God wants us to be happy and he wants to give us our new car and this, that, and the other thing. It's like, no, I mean, the prescription for Christians is you're going to suffer and you're going to die Mm -hmm. for my name. Being able to rejoice in suffering is just something you you can't really experience until you experience it. (laughs) You know what I mean? When you come into those trials in life, embracing Christ and embracing the idea that none of it is meaningless, it's all got a purpose. If Christ, you know, if we're suffering, Christ suffered so much more. Absolutely. That whole story of redemption, I think, is something that resonates deeply. And when it comes to evangelism, I think we've overcomplicated things by trying to make everything this formal presentation of, oh, well, I'm going to come up to this stranger and just say, you're a sinner and you need to repent. And I'm not saying that doesn't ever work. Right. I think of Billy Graham. Okay. So Billy Graham, Mm. godly man, I don't think that he was not saved. I think he was a great evangelist and he Mm. saved Hundreds of thousands of people led them to the, he didn't specifically, you know what I'm saying. He led thousands of people to the Lord. Yeah. And I think that's a wonderful work and God used him in mighty ways. But I also think about the way that he described the gospel. He was very cut and dry and it was very much just what we consider normally the gospel. You're a sinner. Christ died for you. Come to Christ, have eternal life. And that's kind of where it ended. Yeah. It was very uncommon for me to hear Billy Graham give a sermon on Ezekiel. Right. <laughs> or, or Hebrews. You know what I mean? So this idea that the gospel is just contained in that little story, it's not. It's so One phrase I heard once is that the pages of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation are soaked in the blood of Jesus. Mm. Yeah. I could have turned into Genesis 3, and we'll get into that eventually about creation and the fall, but I could have looked at there specifically and seen this promise mm. right in the very beginning of the book. Mankind has fallen, and there's punishment but God has made a way. I don't think of it in these terms that people use. I don't like the term where people talk about like God had to make a plan B. Like, no, 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 no. This was the plan all along. All things work together for good. Isaiah 46 tells us he ordains the end from the beginning. We see in Ephesians, God predestining people from before the foundation of the world. I mean, we see the gospel right in the Genesis story with Adam and Eve. He's told Adam and subsequently Eve, do not do this one thing. He made the, he made them upright. And he said, you can do all these things, just don't do this one thing. They do the one one thing and he doesn't just annihilate them immediately right he gives them grace Mm -hmm. he gives them leaves to cover themselves he continues to provide a way for them to have food and to survive and to create life and then to subsequently populate this globe that we live on so i mean that alone is just a beautiful representation of the gospel right in right in the first two people on earth (laughs) and we could get into kind of technical or specific aspects but i'm sure we'll get into the discussions of like covenant theology and dispensationalism later on. But one idea that I've heard presented that I think this makes a lot of sense from the scripture is you have, and it makes sense with the way that things work, because so often the dichotomy is, well, Old Testament God, New Testament God, Old Testament law, New Testament grace, Old Testament punishment and wrath, New Testament love and mercy. That's really not true because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's no shadow of turning with him. So what are we actually asserting there? Well, if we look a little more deeply, there's this concept of the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. The idea being Adam was under the covenant of works and failed in his works. But everything after Adam is the covenant of grace. Mm. So the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, these are all covenants that fall within the covenant of grace in the way that God is interacting because it's none of them are on the basis of works. I mean, that's the whole chapter 11 of Hebrews, justified by faith. Romans 4, Abraham is justified by faith. And speaking of Abraham and the gospel... We look at how Abraham was saved. It was credited to him, righteousness. Mm -hmm. So he was still saved by Christ on the cross, Mm -hmm. but via credit rather than debit. 
which yeah. is how we're doing it. <laughs> it's a good so yeah. Christ, again, in the entire biblical story, is still the ultimate means of salvation. Yeah, the only way. Amen. As I've been reading Hebrews, I'm obviously a little bit hung up on that at the moment. Sure. Jesus is greater than. But I think what's cool, actually, let me grab my little scripture journal here. So I have this nifty scripture journal from Crossway that I quite enjoy. It's ESV. Every other page. The elect standard version. <laughs> Every other page is blank for journaling. Because I really don't like writing in my Bibles, but I do like to highlight and take notes. And right now I'm in Hebrews. And the nice thing is I can literally just pick up the epistle to the Hebrews. To a comment we made earlier about the word of God, that's Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intention of the heart. I think that's a really powerful thing that goes two ways. We can discern what other people are going through, Mm. and we can wrestle against worldviews and ideologies that come at us and divide them by the word of God and discern the thoughts and the intentions. But that also, he doesn't use the phrase sharper than two-edged sword by accident. So two-edged sword is facing back at the person who's using it. I want my life to be up against the sword of the spirit, to be up against this living and active word, to be discerning my own thoughts. So like when I get muddied up in emotion or in intellectual ideology or, or whatever it is, if I come back to the word of God, it's going to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that's the measure that I put myself up against. And I don't measure up and it forces me to repent and to be conformed. We know that the law was not given to save, but to crush us. I believe it was John MacArthur who said that, who who basically said the law was literally given to us to absolutely wreck us. Hmm. That's the whole point. God gives the law. Not a single person can measure up to that law, Hmm. this perfect law. And so therefore, it's an explanation. Look, this is the condition you're in. This is why you need a savior. Hebrews 8 in verse 6 says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. And then he quotes from the Old Testament about God saying, I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people for they will all know me. And that's the beauty of this is the law shows us our sin. The law reveals to us our inability to meet the moral requirements of holiness. And then that's the other thing that never gets talked about, I think, in Christ, at least not enough in broadly Christian circles, is the act of obedience of Jesus. We always talk about his death and resurrection, which are essential. I mean, without those, we would have no hope. If he hasn't been raised from the dead, our hope is meaningless. And we're to be most pitied of all people, Paul says. But we forget that We're also saved because Jesus lived the perfect life under the law and fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law that we could not and would never fulfill. And so not only is it that he took the punishment of the wrath that was due us for our sin, but he also fulfilled positively the requirements of the law that we failed to fulfill. And I love what Paul does to put that in perspective when he's talking here in Romans 5, Mm -hmm. saying that you and me are not going to die for someone that we hate. We're Mm -hmm. not going to die for an enemy. And maybe we die for somebody that we love or somebody that we consider a good man. But Christ died for us, the people that are God-haters, rebels. We instinctively desire to loathe God. And he continued to die for us anyway. He willingly sacrificed himself on the cross, exercising a love that none of us are capable of. That's what stirred me. When I really repented and God broke down those things in my heart, that heart of stone, and changed my life and gave me new desires, gave me a new heart that longed for Christ, made me alive again, you know, new, born again. Jesus and Nicodemus in John 3. How can a man be born again when he's already born? And Jesus says, no one will see the kingdom of God unless he's born from above. And in that experience, what 
changed it for me was I heard the gospel presented simply, without any showiness, without any illustrations. Not to knock on those things, but it was none of that. It was just the gospel. There wasn't smoke machines and cool music. No. It wasn't. It was not sexy. It wasn't like exciting. It was in this little chapel at a teen retreat. And I'd heard the message for my whole life. But that night in that chapel, it cut me to the quick because I realized not only the weight of sin that I had realized several years before, but now that there was hope and what that hope actually looked like and what Jesus, what that love actually means. And I think people don't understand that. I think they think of Christianity as moralism or legalism. Those Christians just want to Here's tell Here's a me, set of rules. This is what you can't do. Yeah. It, like a list of all the things you can't do. And ironically, it's the gospel that removes the chains that actually keep us doing the things that we shouldn't do. And it actually opens up the door to true freedom. Right. I'm doing the very thing I hate, Paul yes, says. Paul. <laughs> and, uh, You'll hear us quote Paul a lot. He's wonderful. Paul's incredible. The gospels are incredible. And, and to a point you were making earlier about the word that I wanted to circle back to was like, people will criticize the gospels for some of their, this one says there were two people. This one says there were three. This one says it was that. And when I've listened to like legal experts and, and other people who've been way more studied in apologetics than I am, they point out that in a court case, if three people come up and they all say the exact same thing, that's super suspicious that somebody's made this fabricated this story <laughs> yes. and they've all colluded to make sure that everything lines up. So if there are little divergences in some of those details... Well, perspective makes a difference. For sure. You know, I mean, this is kind of a silly little example, but back in the day, I heard a youth pastor say, well, speaking specifically of this very issue, hmm. saying if somebody says, oh, well, I saw the car was silver, and the other person says, well, I saw the car was gray, well, number one, two different perspectives. Number two, one could be talking about the outside of the car, one could be talking about the inside of the car. If two police officers are looking at a vehicle, one could say it's occupied once, one could say it's occupied twice. They could both be right in what they've seen, but ultimately it's not even relevant to the story that they're telling here yeah. in the gospel. You know, the importance is not, was there two people there? Was there four people there? The importance is what right. did those people see? Yep. When it comes to the gospels, particularly the synoptics in the gospel of John, like you have this incredible continuity of who Jesus is, of what Jesus did, of where Jesus went, of how he affected the world around him. And yeah, one of them says there's two, one says there's three people. One says he was there one night, one says he was there two nights. And also there's different contexts as well. I mean, mm -hmm. most of those things are not actual contradictions. And that's something that I think a lot of people in our generation wrestled with because they didn't get these foundational viewpoints and basic apologetic training. And I'm not talking that everyone needs to be a uh, Ventilian apologist or R.C. Sproul, but that we have enough basic understanding that we have a reasonable faith. Mm. We're not fideists. Well, Peter specifically says to always be ready to give a defense for the faith Absolutely. that's in us. So, I mean, that is a call to some level of theological understanding. This. And, and if we truly love Christ, like if we say we love God and we say we love Christ, wouldn't then therefore the fruit be that we want to learn and grow and, and enjoy him more? Mm -hmm. If I meet someone who's a Christian and they say, well, I never, I never read the Bible. It's not that I'm necessarily questioning their salvation, but it does throw up some red flags. Why aren't you reading the Bible, the word of the living God that you say you trust and believe in love? Do you really love him? Is he really the sole affection of your desire? And by all means, I'm not saying that we do this perfectly, not even no. close. We say these things with mirrors looking at ourselves as well. But just this idea that we should always be engaged with the Word of God and in either our mind or our, our thoughts as we go throughout the day, it's relevant to every part of our life. Absolutely. And the other thing that people, I think, often misunderstand about it is they think it's a textbook or a rule book. But as you alluded to earlier, it's an epic narrative story that unfolds in all different genres 
different time periods, different writing styles. I don't read Greek, but some of my friends who have their PhDs and master's degrees and do read Greek will tell you the difference in the way that John writes versus Matthew versus Luke versus Paul versus the author of Hebrews and how there's all these different styles of writing, even within the language. Mm. And yet God uses all of that to communicate truth. And one thing that, you know, you might be a nerd when you're reading in Exodus, the layout of the temple (laughs) or the tabernacle rather, and you start getting weepy because you see the beauty of what the author of Hebrews talks about way later of how this is the smoke and mirror of the, of the heavenly things. And yet God still gave so much precision and delicate, intricate detail to his people for their place of worship and for where they were to meet with him. And everything is detailed out. And I think that, that just shows the incredible care of God. And then in other areas, the Bible is very brief. In the beginning, God created. He spoke and there was light. He spoke in this. It doesn't go into great detail. You know, there's debates out there about young earth and old earth, all these different things. And, you know, I have a position, but it's not a hard and fast one. The hard and fast position is God spoke and the universe came into being by the power of his word. And that same God who spoke all existence into being is the God who speaks to the pages of the book in front of us. I do have a position on creation and I do believe it is firm. And there's the difference of our personalities. <laughs> and we can debate that another day. We may actually not differ. I'm not sure. But my, my point being that uh, as we come to the Bible, that same power that created the universe. It's in every letter of the scriptures. Absolutely. And that power now is almost in a more, a more miraculous thing mm. in sanctification. First of all, in regeneration, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Romans, the word of God is living and active. Now, this is all assuming that all of you are, of course, reading only the King James Version. Of course. (laughs) King James. (laughs) We're kidding. Forgot about that detail. I think that that is a beautiful thing. I'm saying this as much as a reminder to myself to be amazed and to not grow weary of seeking God in his word. And so if anything, that's my exhortation to myself Mm -hmm. as to all of you listening is let's get in the word and let's dive in deeply. And if you're already there, encourage your brothers and sisters who aren't in it as much as we need to be. Because every breath we draw is by the grace of God. So let's draw the breaths that we have, saying the words of God to ourselves and to each other and seeking him in his word. I love the way Piper puts it. He says, get alone with God and keep filling your mind with the word of God until your heart sings with confidence. Hmm. Beautiful way to put it. I think that's a beautiful way to end too. Amen. (laughs) So go grab yourself a Glencairn glass, pour some scotch, open the word of God, enjoy it and enjoy him forever and ever. Amen. To learn more, visit distillingtheology.com and check us out on Instagram at Distilling Theology and Facebook, Distilling Theology.